Well, I hope you're doing good. We, uh, you know, these just continue to be crazy times for us, and uh, we're all learning how to cope and make it through, and, and thank you for your, thanks for being here today. Uh, thanks for watching online if you are. Appreciate you too, even though you're not here. I'm glad to see everybody. Uh, this week, uh, one, of our, one of our dear saints uh, went to be with the Lord. Uh, we had a funeral yesterday, celebration of life for Becky Hoyle. A lot of you probably didn't know her. She was uh, not real outspoken. She was kind of quiet. I've been a faithful member here for about oh, 25 years or so. Kids grew up here. And uh, we, just had a, you know, we just had a great celebration remembering her, her life, remembering how good the Lord is. The Lord is good. Uh, we were singing about the holiness of God, and, and, and you've probably heard me say this, but, but the aspect of the holiness of God, the holiness means to be set apart, to be set apart. But when we're talking about God, uh, God is set apart, but God is wholly other. In other words, God, there's nothing like, there's no one, nothing that exists like God. It's the wholeness of God. It's all of his attributes working in perfection together. His justice, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his love, his mercy. Uh, God is just, but he's also love, and that all works together in, in, in perfectness. So we're talking about the holiness of God and discovering discovering the holiness of God. And, and this is one of the aspects that I believe, one thing that's going to be exciting about heaven, it is going to be for us the unfolding of the nature and character of God. Whereas, so the angels around the throne are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And they've been doing that eternally, which is not a long time, but it's eternally. Now, I don't know about you, but how long, how long would it take you to get bored saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord? About 15 minutes of that, you'd be like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. But what's happening, the reason that in every moment, eternally, as they say, holy, holy is the Lord, they are seeing aspects of the nature, the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, knowing all, all powerful, you know, they're seeing a a glimpse into the nature and character of God that they've never seen before. And they just go, holy. It's like they're saying, wow. And just think, so we do that. We do that when we, when we travel. We go to places that, that are cool. I remember going to Niagara Falls. It's like, do they turn it off at night? Uh, you know, it's just like, <laughs> just this huge waterfall that you've all seen, and it just keeps going. It's only frozen a couple of times. Just keeps putting out this tremendous volume of water flowing over these falls. You think, it's going to run out sometime, and it doesn't. It just keeps flowing, and you look at that, and you go, wow, you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and some people apparently stand a little too close. You stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and you just think, this is like a wow And I, I just remember as a kid, like the first time we went to like Pensacola, Florida as a, as a kid, and I thought, and I had this revelation, this is where ashtray sand comes from. Because I'd never, you know, I'd just been to like, I'd just been to like Galveston and Padre. I'd never actually seen white sand. I'd just seen like oily, dirty sand of Galveston, you know. But just, you just look at that and you're just like, wow. And just those things overwhelm us. If the creation it's glorious. How much a journey into the wholeness, the holiness, the revelation of who God is 
heaven is not, we're not gonna, it's not going to be one long church service. Because, you know, who wants that? Even preachers don't want one long church service. If, if the preacher's not preaching, he's not into it. I can tell you that. So we're talking about the kingdom of God. Tim talked last week about some aspects. I'm going to take some of the points of Tim's sermon because he and I had been talking about this, working on this together. Take some of the points. I'm going to expand on them a little bit. Uh, I had uh, I have five points. I only got through two of them in the first service, so I guess I'll have to stop both of them. You know, so you'll probably be out in eight or ten or thirty minutes. Uh, so what, what, we're talking about the kingdom, and what does the kingdom of God look like? The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. So we experience the kingdom of God where God is ruling. So we experience the kingdom of God. We're in the kingdom of God because we've invited the king to reign in our hearts. Everywhere the king reigns is the kingdom of God. And even in your own life, there may be areas where the king is not reigning, and you need to allow and that's part of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. God is conforming you to the image of Christ. He's making you more like Christ. And none of us are there yet. Just like William said, some of you still have disgusting habits. He said that. He said, but if you have a disgusting habit, still go to church. Because the chances are pretty good that the person sitting next to you does too. Or they've got other problems. Because we're, we are a, a bunch of messed up people saved by grace that need the Lord's help. We... We're dependent upon the Lord. So, uh, you know, uh, we need to do that. So the kingdom of God is areas where we've allowed God to come and rule and reign in our heart, come to take, take over. And so we're going to talk today about the kingdom of God and how we live in the kingdom and how living in the kingdom will turn the world right side up because we live in an upside down world. We live in a world that values the wrong things. We live in a world that doesn't value the right things. And this is not new. The New Testament church, the early church, began, began to turn the world. They use the term in the book of Acts as these are the ones that have turned the world upside down. This is, this is a little bunch of fishermen, this ragtag bunch of guys who, who just weeks before didn't really have the theology sorted out yet. They didn't understand that Jesus was why he was going to die on a cross. They didn't understand that he had to suffer, what he was going to accomplish when he suffered. That when Jesus said, hey, you know, I've got to go to Jerusalem and suffer, Peter said, Lord, I rebuke you. You know, it's not like rebuking the God of the universe. Uh, correct him on his theology. And he says, the Lord rebuke you. And, uh, or or he, he corrects him. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan because you don't have in mind the, the plans of God, but the plans of man. In other words, you, what, do, what do we want? I don't know what you want, but most of us want comfort. Right? I mean, that, and that's, you know, Peter said, I don't want to, this is a good thing here. I mean, you know, we just saw Moses and Elijah on the mountain transfigured with you. That was a cool, that was, man, that was an amazing light show. Uh, that was cool, uh, but... Now we're here in the valley, and Jesus says, well, I'm going to have to suffer. And he says, no way. So they, they didn't have the theology right. Then when Jesus died, they were disappointed. No one was more surprised that Jesus was alive than the disciples. I mean, they, they, they weren't waiting for Jesus to be resurrected. Because when they came and, you know, when they ran to the door and said, the grave is empty. They didn't believe them. 
First of all, because it was a woman, and you didn't in that day, I'm not saying that, don't kill me yet, uh, they didn't accept a woman's testimony. Women were not valued. They were too emotional, hysterical to be truthful. Was the was what they said. Am I clarifying that? Okay. Let me back up a little bit here. Uh, uh, they, didn't, they weren't expect- So even when they went to the tomb and they saw the tomb was empty, when Peter ran to the tomb and John followed him, they went into the tomb. What did they say? They've stolen his body. They, they didn't they didn't expect it. And so then this little group, then Jesus shows back up and he's with them. He walks around with them for 40 days. They see him. 500 people see him all at one time. Lots of people see the resurrected Christ. And so then after 40 days, he ascends to the Father. And he said to them, now go into Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, God sent the Spirit of God that descended upon them, and the church was birthed. And that day, Peter, the chicken, preached a sermon in front of a crowd and accused them all of crucifying Jesus. He said, Jesus, who you crucified. So somewhere he had gotten courage he didn't have 50 days before. The church was birthed, and this little... This little group of ragtag tag fishermen and tax collectors and z- trouble zealots who were kind of tr- troublemakers uh, turned the world upside down. So in the, by the end of the first century, century there were like 10,000 or more, not a lot of Christians, 10,000 Christians at the end of the first century. At the end of the second century, there were about 200,000 Christians, they believed. At the end of the third century, there were like six million. This was during the time of the greatest amount of persecution up until present time that the church had ever seen. I mean, people died for their faith. The Romans couldn't, they just didn't allow crowds to meet because they were afraid. I mean, if you're a Roman emperor, if you'll look at the list of Roman emperors, it's pretty sure you're going to be knocked off before you've been an emperor very long. You know, sometimes by your best buddy, right? So they were paranoid because there were always coups and and one Caesar would be overthrown by another one who then became the next Caesar and, you know, and so they're, they're afraid. So they didn't let groups meet. If they heard of clandestine groups meeting, their only thought can be they're plotting the overthrow of Rome. And so they would bring those people in and inter- interrogate them. And they, you know, they would interrogate the Christians. What are you doing? So they, they would, the Christians, what they did at the time, they would gather early on a Sunday morning. Uh, why early? Early because Sunday was a work day. Still had to go to work. Boy, that talk about let's thin the crowd. Let's start meeting at six in the morning so we can have church before we go to work. I didn't get one amen for that. Right? 
So they're meeting, and, and such so a small group, and, and, uh, and they, what are they going to do? They're going to come together, and they're going to sing a song. They're going to sing songs. One of the reasons why they're going to sing songs, just like we sing songs, one of the persons, purpose why we sing songs, and we sing new songs, is in songs, we try to make sure when we sing a song that it has good theology. Sometimes we slip and we think, ooh, that wasn't right. No, that's not right. And we try not to do those songs. But because most of the crowd of the early Christians, they couldn't read. They were not literate. But, there, but because it was a mixed crowd, there were some people who could read, so they, would, they didn't have Bibles to have, to have had the Torah, the, the Old Testament, to have had a scroll of the Old Testament would have been very rare. But what they did have is that, so they, they early on, they began to have copies of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They began to have copies of the Gospel. They would make copies of the, we've, there are, we've found there's fragments of Scripture that there are of, of early second century, the copies of the first century documents that have lasted from the second century, there are literally hundreds of thousands of those. So they, they had copies, so they would, they, someone would read scripture, or they would read a letter from Paul. And that was their church service. And this group turned the world upside down. They didn't have any power. They didn't have any prestige. They were just followers of this risen Savior. And in, and in 300 years, they had virtually overpowered Rome. Constantine didn't make Christianity the religion of the empire because Christianity needed him. Constantine made Christianity the religion of the empire because he needed the evangelical vote, so to speak. They were strong. So how did this group, and, and I would say, I believe that this is one of the worst things that ever happened to the church. The church, while it was persecuted, was pure. The church, once it became part of a political entity, became, became sick and weak in many ways. Not everyone, not everybody, but there were real problems because if you had money, once it became political, once you had money, you could with money buy a position. You could become a bishop with money. And then you could control, and then it became horrible. So how did this little group of people do this? First of all, they were multiracial and multiethnic. In other words, the, the, the early church was, was this unusual microcosm that had never existed. When a person of any race or culture put their faith in Christ, it gave them a new perspective on their inherited culture and a new multiracial, multiethnic community, the first one formed by any religion. In other words, this was a gathering of people that were not alike, people whose social circles would have never overlapped, masters and slaves and free people that would rich and poor were gathering together on these early Sunday morning gatherings to meet. Jew, Gentile, they're gathering together. What are they gathering together under? That Jesus Christ is Lord. A, de a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is their king. And now this 
different body of people, and I would say even, even generationally different. I think it's very healthy for a church to have multiple generations. It needs to have old people. It needs to have young people. I love this church because we've got lots of babies, which means we've got lots of young people, and we've got old people. We've got lots of old people. And I don't know if you know this, young people, you not, may not recognize this. You need some old people around you because you're going to do some stupid stuff. And we already did it. And we'd like to help you not be as stupid as we were. And we need, we need the energy and the vitality of the, of the youth. We need that. There needs to be a good mixture. So that's another sermon, but I'll throw that out there. Look at, so we get a picture of it in Revelation. What's heaven going to be like? Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain. This is a song about Jesus. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So what, what's heaven going to look like? It apparently is visible that there are people from every tongue and tribe and people and, and nation. It's all, all the diversity of humankind. And you've made them to be a kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom, right? You've made them to be a kingdom. So we have been called, us that have been called to follow Christ, those that have said yes to the call, have responded in the faith to say, yes, Jesus is Lord, so now we're in the family of God. We're a kingdom. We are a kingdom of priest and priest. So what, what does a priest do? You're a priest in the kingdom. You think, well, I didn't know that. I just thought there was like a couple of you guys. No, we're all priests. Because we have a, a priest represents God to the people. That's what, that's what a priest does. A, a priest stands between God and the people and says, hey, God wants you to come on. So we are a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is one of the things you may not realize. When you die, you go to heaven, but at some point, we're going to come back with Jesus and reign on the earth. We're, in other words, there, we have an, a death. God's going to, we still have work to do on here on earth before we get to finish up in heaven, which finish up, which is eternity. It's a hard concept, okay? Uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 1. They're talking about the early church. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger. What does the word Niger mean? It means black. Now, in the early church, you can read all through the Bible. The Bible is, is, is filled with people of different races, and it doesn't generally go into this. But, but the early church was filled with black and white, and, and, and not very many white, actually. I mean, you have to realize most of the early church was brown. And the white, or later in Germany and France and England, and... So most of what's around the Mediterranean is brown, right? And then there were blacks that had come up from Africa and Egypt that were part of the community. And, and for the most part, color was, not, color was not an issue. Lucius of Cyrene and Mananin, who had been brought up with Herod. Manan, I said that wrong. 
who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So, so, so he's talking about in the church of Antioch, you've got, you've got Jews and Gentiles. You've got this man who is uh, Niger, who is a prophet, a leader in the church. And you've got Manon, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, which means he's loaded. He's wealthy. So you've got people who don't have money. Barnabas, we know, if we read the story of Barnabas in the book of Acts, he was a property holder, which made him wealthy. He had property. He sold that property and gave it all to the church. And they called him because of it. They called Barnabas the son of encouragement because he was generous. So you, we just see the diversity of the church. It was ethnically diverse. It was racially diverse. It was socioeconomically reversed. Easy for you to say. We get another picture in Ephesians chapter 2. So, so because it was different, it, 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 people began to be pulled into the life of this community. It was different. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2.10. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So God's called us to stuff. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. In other words, our sins are covered by grace. But we're called to work. We don't work our salvation. You can't do any good work that will save you. But after you get saved, it's time to go to work. Not to earn God's approval or to earn God's love, but because you know you got it. You, you, you know there's a difference, right? In other words, I'm not working, I'm not doing stuff so God will love me. That's settled. That's secure. I'm do, I'm, I do stuff because I know he loves me in response to his love. So we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're in Christ so that we can do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And God has even kind of mapped your life out so that you have opportunity to do it. In other words, there's going to be people you run into and lives that you intersect. And some of you are, you know, in the, in the where you work, where you live, your relatives, you, God puts you in contact with those people on purpose. You, you in a lousy job, you're in a lousy job on purpose. Because God wants you to contact there's somebody there where you are that God wants you to show the grace of God. That doesn't mean you gotta, you know, you gotta preach to them every, every day, but they need to see Jesus through you. God put you there on purpose. That's just what he's saying. We all live purpose-filled lives whether we recognize it or not. So remember, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. This was the big divide in the church, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews didn't think anybody else could get in. They thought they were God's chosen, and they were the only chosen. And so when God began to reach, when God said to Abraham, I'm in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But, you know, you can, you can lose stuff over time. They'd lost that said, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles of the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Thanks for bringing that up. 
remember that you were at that time. I mean, is it, is it, I mean, I know we've said this, but isn't circumcision just the craziest thing that God would use as a symbol of that you're in the covenant or not? But he did. Okay. Not as unusual to you. Okay. Remember that you were at that time separate from the promise, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Those of us who were alienated and we couldn't get into the family of God, now through the blood of Christ, we're here. For he himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. So the enmity between us is the law. Neither side is keeping the law. The Jews, because they're not able to do it on their own strength, and neither are you, and the Gentiles because they don't care. Thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. And through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He said, now we both can come to God. Because Jesus abolished what was separating us by his blood. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. He said, now you are God's people. You're God's household. You're God's family. You have legally been adopted into the family of God, having been built on the foundation of the, the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole body, the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. See, so God's building, building us together, not apart, not separate, together into his into his people. So that a great divide in the church was not racial, but ethnic, Jew and Gentile. And they worked real hard to overcome it. And we have to work really hard to overcome any divisions that show up in the body of Christ. Whatever exists, divisions exist today, we need to overcome. And we do, we, we need to work to overcome the divisions of, of lo location. Just because there are churches on every corner doesn't mean that's division. It doesn't mean we have to agree about everything. I mean, I've got a brother who lives in Bedbrook. We're family. We're still committed to each other. We don't agree on everything. He lives in Benbrook. We don't live, to, we don't live in the same household. Probably would kill each other if we did. Uh, he lives in Benbrook. I live here. I live in Forney. We don't have to live together to be family. You know, we, so there's certain values that he has. And, some, some, and the same thing is true. We don't have to have, like, we don't have to all worship in one church in the world, you know. But we need to work together to love each other and have unity together. Why is this important? Well, it's important, John 17, 20. I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now, this is what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. 
Jesus is praying for us, and he's praying for us before he goes to the cross. So this is like some of the last things that Jesus says to his disciples and to us before he goes to the cross. So you think it's important? And it's Jesus praying for us. He's praying to the Father. I mean, I think if Jesus raises his hand in the prayer meeting and says, hey, I have a prayer request, we're all going to listen. Right? So Jesus said, oh, hey, hey, guys, I got something I want to pray about. He said, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but but for those also who believe in me through their word. So who who is that? That's us. Thank you, Wendy, for paying attention. Us, that's us. Who have heard the word? Who has heard the word? Well, so, so they wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. People heard that. It was dispersed. So people told other people, hey, you, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Who, who's Jesus? Well, Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. I, how did, why did he do that? And then he rose from the dead. And, and he, wants you to, he wants you to be in his family. Wow, that's incredible. And so pe- people have told that story. And people said, hey, I want to be in that family. And so, so here we are. Here we are today. We're saying, hey, I want to be in the family of God. We heard the message. So Jesus is praying on our behalf. Those who believe, right, in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Belief in Jesus Christ in culture is directly tied with our ability to walk in unity. Jesus said, I want them to be one so the world will believe that you sent me to save the world. Because if, if saved people don't act like saved people, then the world has no reason to believe. If we can't get along, how can we tell the world how to get along? Right? So it's imperative that we have the unity. And there's only one thing that can do that. And that is the supernatural power of God working within us. Because I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we're all pretty stinking selfish. I've noticed you are. I don't know. We're all, we all struggle with this. And so what we need, we have, to, we have to surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and through that be empowered by the Spirit of God so that we can love each other supernaturally with the kind of love. Jesus said, hey, Tim talked about this last week. I want you to love each other the way I have loved you. <laughs> think about that. Th- think, I want you to love one another the way I have loved you. So if we do that, we need to operate and have this kind of community. It's, it's world-changing. Secondly, and I've got one minute for this point, so bear with me. The church was, secondly, highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized in that period. It was considered normal to care for the poor and needy of one's own family. In other words, it was an, Roman culture was an honor culture. You took care of your family and your own. But no one felt obligated to care for all the poor and needy. Uh, especially people that were, you know, what we, they considered barbarians, uh, what the Romans considered barbarians. We certainly aren't going to take care of them. Uh, but the church was different. The, the churches began to take care of everyone. Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we'll reap if we don't grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of faith. So based on, Jesus told this story. A guy goes to him one, comes to him one day and says, what's the law? Uh, how do you read the law? And Jesus said, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. 
So this guy said, well, you know, because he's looking for a technicality. He said, uh, who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, to the Jews, Samaritans were, were way out there because they, they, they kind of worshiped God, but they worshiped another God. And so if you were going to make this story appropriate today, it would be the Good Muslim. So it was a good Muslim who was going down the road, but there was a, there was, there was a Christian man who, who fell among robbers, and he got beat up and left for dead. And along came a, a good Christian man, a pastor even, and he saw him laying there on the road. He was thinking, man, i got to get to church. People are waiting for me. I'm busy. I don't have time for this. And he went on his way and went by the man. And later, another man came by, another Christian man, saw him laying there and realized that he was in bad situation, but he also thinking he didn't want to get involved because what if the robbers are still around? I mean, yeah, he got beat up and left for dead. What can I do? Am I a doctor? Can I help him? What knowledge do I have? I can, what can I do? So he also went away, walked on the other side of the road and went around him. But the Muslim guy, when he saw him, he, he, he took him and he bandages up his wounds. And he put him on his own animal that he was using to carry himself. And he, you know, so he's, he's taking time. He's, and he takes him, he takes him to an inn that is, that is a part of his travels. And he bandages up his wounds, his wounds. And he says to the innkeeper, listen, take care of this guy. And, and when I come back through, I will repay you. I'll pay you any expense that is incurred because of that. So Jesus is saying, who's my neighbor? Then who is my neighbor? My neighbor is the person in my life that God brings me in contact with that has a need that I can do something about. See, sometimes we get all locked up. Well, I can't solve every problem in the world. Man, there's more people than you can, poor people than you can imagine. Absolutely. But what about, what if you can do a little bit for that one person in your life that needs a little help. What if you just, what if you give a little help to somebody? What if you, what if you can just help somebody else get a job or, or help them find a place to live or give them a place to live or, or, or get them groceries or, or help them get job training? Or what if you could do a little bit? See, we get, often we get so involved. We say, well, I can't solve all those problems. Well, yeah. What, but what if you can solve a little problem? What if you could just do for the one? Instead of saying, well, there, there's a thousand people out there. What, what about one person? Aren't you glad that God looked down and said, hey, there's one that I'm going to save. Oh, I'm going to save the whole world, but I'm going to save this one right here too. So how do we care for the poor? Galatians 2.10. They only ask us to remember the poor. This is Paul talking about when he got called into ministry. And so he went before the the, all the other believers, all the other Christian fathers, leaders of the church. And they said, okay, we, we believe God's called you to the Gentiles. You go do that. Uh, but here's what we want you to do. We want you to remember the poor. And he says, the very thing I was also eager to do. Here's what's interesting. So the church was good at this and they, they did it. And there's some other things. I'm going to wrap this up. We'll finish it up next week. But, uh, the church cared for people, and, they, and even though, so they had limited resources. They weren't, it wasn't a wealthy group. They didn't have property. Uh, they met in houses usually. Uh, they had to do most of what they did secretly. But they, they cared for the poor in such a way that uh, 
Julian. Julian was the son of Constantine. And Julian wanted to take, he became the emperor after Constantine, and he wanted to take the empire back into paganism. So he, he was a pagan, he, he, he declared himself a pagan, in other words, a worshiper of the gods of Rome, all the pantheon of the gods of Rome. And he wanted to snuff out Christianity. And writing, he, so he's writing about Christianity. This is, he's only emperor for two years. But he's, after Constantine, he's in, I think it's 363. He's writing about Christians, and he says this. The Christian practice of caring not only for their own poor, but ours as well, is both offensive and attractive. He said, it offends our Roman sensibilities, but man, they're reaching people because they care about the poor. They don't care about people's station in life. They're not measuring people by what they've, they care about slaves. They care about people whose lives are a mess. And they care about, they don't, they just, they just want to see people have the love of Christ. Here's the thing. These, these principles, we're going to go into more next week. But if we, can, if we can live the stuff we believe, what we believe is powerful. It, it's literally world-changing. We're, we're, we're increasing in the time where it's very likely where we could have more persecution than we've ever experienced. Not today, not 10 years down the road, but if things continue like they are, it's going to be more difficult to be a Christian. It will be more costly to be a Christian. But we have the ability, not through political power, not for voting in the right person, but by being who God called us to be, we can be agents for change in the world. And sometimes it's just a little thing. What if you just change your life? Because you never know what a, an individual life can do. So God wants to use you. He's placed you where you are with the people you're in contact with. You don't even have to pack up and go to Africa or some mission field. It's, it's here. It's here. It's all around us. We can just love people and, and show them what it means. We need to demonstrate. We need to, re- we, we need to be the real deal. Not perfect people, but people who are really committed to following Christ in such a way that we're able to share the message of God's love effectively with those people around us. Amen? All right, I got to quit. Let's stand. Thank you. Father, help us to be the real deal. Help us all, Lord, in this, in this world to stand out, not because we're trying to stand out, but just because we are following the risen king. And what he believes is so different that it, it is noticeable. Lord, we want to follow you. 
We want to be world changers. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everybody. I love you.